Well, last week, Trevor, Pastor Trevor preached, and he preached, his message was the gospel in a nutshell, but he opened his message last week, if you remember, he took all the blame for our Matthew series ending two weeks early, and it's good, because he was almost fired for that, because I had two really good messages, and this would be the last day of our Matthew, but he, uh, you know, he did a great job, honestly, so this terrible mistake was turned well, and what he did, he gave us actually some opportunities to look back and say, what honestly was the purpose of Jesus' life? Like, why did Jesus come? For two years, we talked about this wonderful man, what Jesus did, how he healed people, how he preached on the Sermon on the Mount, and there was nobody else like him, how he could multiply loaves and fishes. But that happened 2,000 years ago. I mean, that was a long time ago. How does that have any impact on me today? Actually, Pastor Derek... When uh, we would work in the office, we'd talk about preaching. And Derek would always say, there has, to be, there has to be a so what moment in every sermon. And the way he'd put it is a so what moment is to say, okay, all of that teaching's great, but so what? What do I do with it today? How does it change me? Because really, honestly, this morning I didn't want to get up. Or this week I don't want to go to work. How does Jesus affect me today? Tomorrow at work. And so that's called the so what question. And today I want to answer that. So we had two years of talking about Jesus. 2,000 years ago, he's a wonderful man. But what does he do for me today? What, what does he mean to me today? And so honestly, um, I picked a passage of scripture that I'd like you to open up to. Romans 6. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. And the title of this passage is, What Shall We Say Then? And you'll understand this picture in a second. Um, but I think this is a passage of scripture that we need, especially today in America in 2022. And this is why Jesus came. So I'm going to read it. I'm going to discuss why I chose it. And then I'm going to slowly work through this and hopefully... When you leave here today, you'll say, oh, that's what Jesus wants me to do. That's why he came. So let's read Romans 6, verse 1. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If you notice... Verse 2 is an exclamation point. It means it's to be emphasized. Should we go on sinning so that grace, grace may increase? By no means. King James says, God forbid. Don't think like that. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 
Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're going to look at. And I just want to tell you why I picked this. First reason is this is why Jesus came. This is the reason for his coming the first time on earth. He's going to come again. And when he comes again, he's going to come down out of the clouds. He's going to set up his throne and we're going to have heaven on earth for all eternity. But the first time he came wasn't to bring heaven on earth. It was to get rid of this filth in us. That's why he came. So this is the message. Second reason why I'm picking this is to me, how do you know if you're a genuine Christian? Like what is the litmus test? I think it's Romans 6. How do you know if you're really born again? It's Romans 6. Sin will stop having mastery over you. You'll start to conquer it. You'll become more and more like Christ. But the third reason I picked this is uh, very simple. You won't hear this in most American churches. And it may be the most important message you hear. People don't like this. Because it's hard. So let me um, explain to you why I picked it. I have a picture up here, and let me tell you a story based on this picture. So for the first 23 years of my life, I was a faithful Roman Catholic. I was very faithful. And when I mean faithful, I took religion very seriously. So for instance, I had a grandfather who would always sit on a couch and do the rosary. You know, an old one of those old guys that wear suspenders, you know, kind of cranky. Well, I'd do the rosary with him when he was over. In the mornings, I'd do the rosary. I'd take it very serious with him. I went to confession across from Father Callahan. That was his name. Father. I had an Irish priest, Father Callahan. That's real Catholic. <laughs> I was an altar boy. I got to hold the big candle on Christmas Eve that was lit, you know, and walk down the aisle. I got to do that. When I was in college, I went to a Catholic university, and I went to church with my grandma, who lived really close by, every Sunday. While all of my roommates slept in, I went to church, because I wanted to prove to my grandma I was a good, young Catholic man. I wore a St. Christopher's medal for 13 years of my life. He's my patron saint. I'm named after St. Christopher. And he protected me, is what I believe, for 13 years. I actually, you might not believe this, but I actually enjoyed the pomp and circumstance of religion, like the liturgy, where you go, the reason why is when they would do that, I felt like I was holy or something. I'd come into church, incense would be wafting, you know, light coming in from stained glass windows, and it just felt holy, like I was in the presence of God. Like I felt religion was it. I revered the Pope. I revered the Pope. But you know what else I did? You won't believe this. 
I even rooted for Notre Dame. <laughs> that's Joe. That's how serious of a Christian I was. A Catholic. Who you root for now? Look, Boyd, I'm preaching. <laughs> All right, so the problem was, even though I was religious, I struggled mightily wondering if God even accepted me. I never knew what was enough. I never, if I, if I felt like I completed enough or really ever made God happy, I always felt like a fraud, truthfully, because I would go to Mass, but I'd also live how I always used to live. I didn't know. So when um, I was around 21, 22, 23, I started turning on the radio as I went to work, and I'd listen to all these preachers on the radio, and they started teaching this topic called the justification by faith alone. It started blowing my mind away because justification by faith alone teaches that. Remember last week Trevor talked about the gospel? If I accept that Jesus Christ died for my sins, was buried and rose again from the grave, and I accepted that by faith, that his death was my death, and I believe that by faith, I was born again. I was a new creation. I was a child of God. I couldn't believe it. So I realized when Jesus said on the cross, his last words were, it is finished, he wasn't just talking about himself, he's talking about me. All of the work I need to do to please God was finished. It's done. So once I accept Christ, I was done, and God was pleased with me. You probably heard it like this. Religion is spelled D-O. Do this, do that, keep doing, keep doing. True Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. Done. So I was excited. I got to be tell I got to be honest with you. I couldn't believe it. So here's where the story comes in. I went into the kitchen. I told my dad about my discovery. And my dad was sitting at the kitchen table. And he usually had a red bowl and it was full of peanuts. And he liked to crack peanuts and eat them. And he'd sit at the table and talk. He'd throw a peanut at me. I'd crack it and I'd eat it. So while we're sitting at the table, I said to my dad, Dad, I have a newfound faith. All you have to do, Dad, is believe the gospel and you're saved. And my dad was, by nature, he's a devil's advocate. He loved to always argue. It's kind of the Italian in him, Chris. It's the Italian. Loved to argue. So my dad said this. So, what you're telling me, Chris, is you can have your cake and eat it too, huh? I said, I got mad. I said, what do you mean by that? Because that doesn't sound too good. Oh, very simple. That means all you have to do to be a Christian is say that you believe, and then you can go do anything you else. Sin like crazy. You can have your cake, which is easy believism, and eat it too, which is sin to your heart's content. And then he said, that sounds like a good deal to me. I get heaven, but I also get the earth. Oh, I was mad. That's all he said. And it made me furious because even though I didn't know how to answer back, it made, me, made my faith sound cheap, second-rate, junky. So I had to find answers to kind of, uh, and that's why my dad did that. He wanted me to go find answers. But I went to the Bible, and I began to read and read and read, and I need to make sense out of this. And I came to Romans 6. And it's like a bright sun burnt off 
the morning haze of an October dew. It made it was glory. And and um, honestly, I hope you see what I saw that day this morning. It's not going to be a long message, but it's going to be hard to fully understand. But if you see it, it sets you free. So, what is this Romans six all about? Romans 6, what we just read, is about one topic, and we need to understand it. And if we don't understand it, we won't understand anything else. And the topic is sin. It's all about sin. And to understand why the gospel is good news, or why the gospel is so glorious, we need to see sin in all its hideousness. Salvation, I once heard, salvation can never be understood if you don't understand condemnation. If you, you won't go to the doctor if you're healthy. Why will I need medicine if I'm feeling good? But if I'm feeling miserable and I'm dying on the inside, I'll go to the doctor. That's what salvation is all about. If I don't understand I'm in a state of misery, why do I need Jesus in the first place? I once heard a guy give an illustration like this. Imagine I'm on the airplane. And the stewardess comes down in the middle of the aisle of the airplane and says, hey, put on your, put on your parachutes. And you say, why? Well, they, they're really nice color. You know, they're yellow and they're really comfortable as you sit there. Why do I need to put on my parachute? It's a bother. I don't like it. I don't want to wear this stupid parachute. Just put them on. You know, it's kind of our recommended. Really good thing to put those on. But I don't want to. It makes my the flight terrible. Oh, by the way, lightning just shot off both of the wings. I think you want to put them on. Oh, okay. I don't care how miserable it is. Jesus came for sin. It's miserable. It's miserable. Look how Paul starts off in verse 1. What shall we say then? So, all the way up to Romans 5, specifically Romans 5, is all about justification by faith alone. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So that's Romans 5. So Romans 6, Paul's coming in and saying, okay, okay, some of you are going to say, all right, all you got to do is believe, so does that mean we can keep on sinning? What shall we sin? What shall we say then? Shall we keep on sinning? The NLT says, you know what? If we keep on sinning, won't God keep on forgiving? could put it in normal terms, hey, hey, since God is love, why can't I just be who I am, love who I want, do what I want to do with my body, because he's love, and he'll just love. And you know what Paul says, verse 2, God forbid, no, no, stop. The uh, emphasis in verse 2 is meant to shock us out of this complacency towards sin. It reveals how a mature Christian should view sin, the way we should all view sin, something to run from and have no part of. So it's Halloween night, a guy with a white mask is coming after me with a knife, and it's bleeding on the end, like its blood is dripping off the end of the knife. I'm not going to run up and hug him. I'm running away from that guy. Sin has a knife. Or, when I was about 10 years old, I reached up to get some Rice Krispies off the top shelf of the cabinet. 
I poured Rice Krispies in my bowl. And they weren't just uh, snap, crackling, and popping. They were running away because they was loaded with roaches in that Rice Krispie. So I didn't care. I just poured the milk and started eating. I didn't. Teresa, I didn't. I threw that bowl and smashed it. That's what we should do with sin. We don't just eat it. Ay, ay, ay. You got to hate it. Why? Because sin alienates me from God. When I sin, I really believe God hates me. But what we're going to see at the end is God loves me. He's a good father. He's chasing me. Sin isolates me from other people. When I sin, I don't like me. When I sin, you won't like me. Sin corrupts. That's why in the Old Testament, the metaphor for sin was leprosy. Leprosy starts on your extremities, eats the end of your nose, eats your hand, and then comes in and corrodes your whole soul. Sin does the same thing. It's like dry rot on wood. You don't necessarily see it, but if you kick it, there's nothing on the inside. Hollows you out. Sin also kills. Kills relationships. Kills hope. Kills joy. Kills my security with God. I'm always wondering, am I really his? And ultimately it condemns. Chris, you're guilty. You're a loser. God doesn't love you. You might as well stop. And it speaks to that voice of condemnation late at night or early in the morning where, you, you, you know what? God really doesn't love you. That's what sin does. Sin is not a cake to enjoy, but a disease to avoid at all costs. If sin was a cake, it would be made like a witch's brew full of fat, juicy worms, white maggots, severed toes, clotted blood, and poison broth. Because every bad thing you've ever encountered in life, every bad thing you've ever encountered in life is a result of sin. You can look at it like this. I, I know this gets me into trouble, but every time you talk about spending money for government, did you know all the money we spend in government is because of sin? Anyhow, you need to let this sink into your mind, this whole idea of sin. Because if you're ever going to make sense of the Christian life, you got to hate sin. Here's, here's the theme of, I think, Romans 6. It's this. And hopefully this is the theme of every mature Christian's life. Jesus came to earth to free us from sin. Not so we can be free to sin. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. We have, we have kind of turned the word freedom into I can do whatever I want. Biblical freedom is I no longer have to. No longer a slave to it. That's real freedom. You know, you could say, uh, you, could, you could say this, name any sin that you enjoy. Maybe uh, porn. Maybe you're lazy or gluttonous. Uh, you like to gossip. Name any sin you enjoy. Sooner or later, you're going to see that it is not freedom. It is bondage. So maybe the anticipation of the sin and five minutes of the sin is great. But after you're done, it's bad. It's really bad. Or, you know, to me, it's like a rabid pit, pit bulldog. 
you think it's really nice to you, but then when it starts getting out of hand, you can't control it. I had a friend who had a pit bulldog, and you know, I we went into his yard, and there's a big fence around it. The pit bulldog was kind of nice, you know, nice dog. I didn't like I don't like pit bulldogs, but the owner was really, you know, really said, Oh, I love this dog. We started wrestling on his grass, and all of a sudden the pit bulldog saw me as somebody that was attacking his master. And the owner realized it. And the pit bulldog started slowly walking towards me. He goes, Chris, jump the fence right now. I'm like, what do you mean? Jump the fence right now. Why don't you stop your dog? I can't. Don't you understand? When he gets in this mood, I can't. That sin. Or it's like a cigar. Nice cigar. I'm going to smoke a fine cigar, you know, and I think I'm sophisticated and I look really good and I can kind of talk like that when I'm smoking a cigar, you know. <laughs> how guys do, you take a puff and you blow a little smoke circle. See how cool and sophisticated I am? And then you inhale it and it goes in your lungs and it, ah, oh, you get heartburn and then you want to throw up and you turn green. <laughs> and then you go home and your wife says, take off the clothes, they reek. Yeah, but I'm so cool. No, you're not. You're an idiot. That's sin. That's sin. So there's two observations based on sin and based on the reality of why Jesus died for sin. And the first one is this. Observation number one is found in 3 and 6. Look at verse 3. I'm going to emphasize something. We died to sin. Okay, here it is. Verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried, buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. Look at verse 6. For we know that our old self, see where it says old self? What old self means is means me before I was saved. means me before Christ or we call it the old Adamic nature. So Adam sinned. In the garden, he was the first sinner. Theologians call that the federal headship, meaning we were all in Adam when he sinned. So when he was in the garden and he went to bat and he struck out, we all struck out. That's the old nature. So verse 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. Okay, so, here's what those verses tell me, is this. Those who still are being seduced by sin, you know, kind of comes in there and whispers lies and convinces you, they don't know that they're dead. They don't know. Three times he uses the word, you have to know that you're dead. So let's just talk, first of all, knowing. Knowing is how you see. To me, a Christianity that actively defeats sin begins with the mind. You have to tell yourself you're dead. You have to tell yourself you're dead. Warren Wiersbe said that if a Satan can keep a Christian ignorant, he can keep them impotent. That means the less you let Scripture in, the more the world will form your mind. I am convinced, when you look around the world, I am convinced... More people form their opinions or the way they think through TikTok, 
Instagram, Hollywood, and The View. <laughs> then they do Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, and Ephesians. And, and the world is teaching, the world is teaching us different things about freedom. The world teaches that freedom to sin is great. Scripture says when you sin, it's bondage. So, for instance, uh, Bill Maher has had a show called Politically Incorrect. I don't know what it is. Derek, what's his show now? I don't know. That's a good sign as testing. <laughs> Derek is not watching. But Bill Maher, I remember about 15 years ago, this idiot on TV said, I don't see a problem with pornography. It's good for you. It's good for you. I don't see a problem with it. Why, don't, why do we make such a big deal about pornography? Because... You've never counseled a family who's destroyed by it in an office, have you? Have you ever sat with a family whose wife is destroyed because her husband's addicted to it? Bill Maher, you're a fool. It's bondage. But that's how the world thinks. The world also thinks it's genius to invent all these kinds of evil. And I, I, to me, this illustration makes sense. I see if it makes sense to you. How many ways is there to make a straight line? One. How many ways is there to make a crooked line? Unending. Unending. I can make millions of crooked lines. Am I a genius when I make a crooked line? Oh, watch this. Watch how smart I am. I can make a curly cue. See how, wow, that's genius. We have somehow think people who invent evil and perversion are smart and brilliant and geniuses when all they're doing is perverting what was good and moral and true. This Bible is given because if you follow it, God, God blesses you. God heals you. He restores your soul. He gives you a legacy. He gives you a family that loves you. He gives children that turn out pretty good. But man, I don't like this. I'm going to start twisting a little bit. Designs, I'm going to experiment. I'm going to experiment, you know, on my gender or my body or the way I structure marriage. Let's, let's uh, experiment with that. Because if you see on TikTok, look at all the cool things people are doing with their body. It's really cool. No, it's called a crooked line. Anybody can do that. It's not a genius. Like people think, Scary slasher movies of brilliant people who wrote those. You know how easy it would be to think of a weird psychopathic killer who could just stab you with a knife and draw blood? That's easy! What's hard is goodness. Try to write goodness. Sin starts in the mind. And then the mind wants to you according to scripture that you're dead. Let's talk about death for a second because this is really weird. So Paul wants us to know that when we become Christians, we die. We're dead. Our flesh, Adam, has been crucified with Christ. We joined him on the cross. Theologians call this the vicarious atonement. That means when Jesus died 2,000 years ago, and I believe Jesus died, I'm there with him in the mind of God. He actually sees me crucified too. It's crazy. 
But we understand vicarious. Like even when Jesus said, if you look after a woman, it's as if you committed adultery with her. That's called vicarious sin. But faith is vicarious crucifixion. I die with Christ when I believe in him. It's odd, but Paul says it nine times. In, in these 11 verses, he uses death, crucifixion, or died nine times. So God sees you as dead in Christ. And the way God sees is what is true. That's true truth. So I personally think the reason Romans 6 doesn't register that often is because we have a hang-up with the word in verse 3. Look at the word in verse 3. So here's how we read it. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized in the... Oop, baptism. Oop, oop, stop. What's baptism? Oh, water, immersing. Where did, I've never been baptized before. I was out in the lake. He's Baptism, he's not talking about the ritual of baptism. He's using the metaphor of being baptized, going underneath the water. And going underneath the water means, it's supposed to be an illustration that your old self got drowned, got suffocated. The lungs were filled with water and you no longer could breathe and you sunk to the bottom and it's dead. It's dead. The problem is when we see baptism, all we're, oh, I've never been baptized. Have you been baptized? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about drowning. Have you drowned? Have you drowned? Our old nature has been submerged and suffocated under the water because belief is letting God kill the flesh in me. Aaron, I was thinking about Missy. Aaron's wife, Missy, had this song. I'm not going down to the river with you, this bluegrass song. I'm, it goes, I ain't going down to the river. It's really good. She sings a lot better than me. But the whole idea is asking Missy, what's that song about? She goes, in bluegrass, when your boyfriend asks the girlfriend down to the river so he can go kill him. And so she wrote a song, I ain't going down to the river to you. And the line goes, I ain't going down to the river with you like all the other girls before because when they do, they don't come back no more. That's the point. When you're baptized in Christ, the old man shouldn't come back. He went down the river with Jesus. So let's just talk about drowning for a second. Where I grew up, across the street, there was this big cliff, and it went down about 200 feet into the water, the cold water of Lake Erie. A lot of times if a storm came in, the waters would smash up against the rock face of the cliff. And I can remember going there with my sisters. and There was a fence that you could look over the fence, and then there was a little bit of grass, maybe three feet of grass, but then there was a cliff that went straight down. Often my sisters would say, let's go over the fence. I'm like, Steph, we go over this fence, we're going to be close to the edge of the cliff. Oh, but it's fun. So sometimes we'd go over the, over the fence and we'd hold on to the chain and kind of lean and look, you know. And you could look straight down. It's kind of scary. If my other sister saw us do it, she goes, you guys get over there. If my mom came, she'd be like, oh, I'll keep doing that, kids. No problem. But no, my mom makes So, you know, if you look over that cliff, ah, oh, that's 200 feet. You could plunge to your death. So let's think we're on the edge of the cliff. And so when you're considering jumping, you're considering that I'm, I'm going to end my life. What is your life? So this is, when I die, means all the actions you've done in the past can no longer harm you because you are dead. 
So all of the addictions, all of the porn, all of the sinful habits, all of the anger, maybe the divorce, all of that stuff, it's done. It's dead. It also means all of the trophies and accomplishments and achievements I brag to others about don't matter anymore because you're dead. So that means the degrees you've earned, the family you come from, it's not that impressive because you no longer matter. Have you ever read Psalm 49? When people die, their memories are no longer remembered. So stop remembering those things that make you great. They're dead. So they're dead. So you jump, and as you jump, your life flashes before your eyes. You're getting closer to the water, and you realize all of that is done. And then you look up, kind of like uh, Frodo and the Hobbit. So when you're going, you're going down into the water, and then you're saying, it's done, it's over, and then you die. You did it. But let's say your ghost comes up, and it haunts, goes back home. And then you go back home and you're arguing with your brothers and sisters how great a person you are. But they can't hear you because they can't see you. You're dead. You're dead. So quit arguing. Quit trying to prove yourself. That's the point. When you jump, all of these sins, all of your greatness, everything, it's dead. And when, when a person realizes their old nature is dead, they quit trying to prove themselves, feeling bad about themselves, keep saying, well, I'm not sure God loves me. You're dead. It doesn't matter anymore. Quit trying to prove. Quit trying to strive. Quit trying to be religious. You're dead. So then what do I do? Well, that's when verses 5 and 8 through 10 come in. He uses one word a couple times. I want you to see it. Verse 5, if we have been united with him, like this in his death, we will also certainly be united with him in his resurrection. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lived. Ah, he lives to God. So the point of this is, the second thing I want to say, is that those who are still mastered by sin may not be united to Christ, because if you're united to Christ, you'll no longer be mastered by sin. You are part of him. He's in you. You're connected to him. So now, since he died for you, now he wants to live in you through the Holy Spirit, who's real. And he, he lives in you. So when you believe in Jesus, when you believe he died for you, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, and he raises up this new life, this new person. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus Christ. He will motivate you to live a new life for him. He'll give you new desires, new dreams, new ambitions for him. Because Jesus rose from the grave, so will all those who believe, because they are united to Jesus by faith. And when he lives in you, you'll want to live differently. You'll have nothing to prove. You won't say, oh, all those years I tithed and wore a tie. You're done with that. It doesn't matter. That guy's dead. Now you'll just want to live for Christ. 
I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But this life that I now live in the flesh, in his body, I live by the faith of the Son of God. But that's hard. Why would I live by the faith of the Son of God? Because he loved me. How do I know he loved me? Because he gave himself for me, so I now want to live for him. Let me personally show you what I mean by this. I think, if you go to Luke 15, I think this is the greatest story ever told. I think you know it well, and I think the reason you know it well, because you're supposed to remember it as you live your Christian life, and it's Luke 15, 11. But I want you to notice a few things from it. And watch how it relates to Romans 6. It's exactly like Romans 6. Luke 15, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So two sons, the father's rich. The younger one said, could I have my inheritance now? Sure, here's your inheritance. Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. In other words, he was addicted to sin. Sin. That's the point. Because if you go to uh, verse 30, it elaborates on what that sin was. The older brother says, that son of yours squandered your property with prostitutes. So he was living a rotten life. Verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So this is the results of sin. And the results of sin is this barren life. When sin really gives birth, it gives birth to death. All right, so he was in bad shape. So verse 15, he went off, hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed the pig. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. And they were eating probably leftover lettuce heads, you know, shavings off of onions, probably rotten stuff. And that's what he wanted. That's how bad his condition was. No one gave him anything. So verse 17, when he came to his senses, and I believe this is the moment of repentance, means you start seeing and you want to change. He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's when in his spirit he died. I don't need to hold on. I, I just want to live. That's all I want. I don't care about my past. I just want to live. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like a slave, like one of your hired men. That's all I want. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, watch how it, go, watch how it reads. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with rage and condemnation. <laughs> Is that, that's not how it reads? Boy. It said, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, the one he took his money from, the one he embarrassed. He was filled with compassion and ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. That's God. That's God. 
That's the God who loves you. Even if you are squandering your life, that's how he loves you. He just wants you to come back. Verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy. But the father said to his servants, quick, now watch what happened. Bring the best robe and put him on him. So here's a dirty boy who's wallowing with the pigs, sees the dad. What does the dad give him? A brand new white robe. A new righteous standing before him. When a sinner accepts God, he's justified by faith and he gives him righteousness. What, did he earn it? No, nope, it's just given to him because of God's grace. Then watch this. Put a ring on his finger. What is a ring? It's a sign that you are adopted and you'll never be let go. Sandals on his feet, purpose. Bring the fatted calf and kill it in celebration. When you come back to God, it's not condemnation, it's joy. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice. And be glad in it. That's why, really, it's good news. A Christian church that doesn't know how to laugh is not a Christian church. I actually heard this, and I agree with it. A Christian who doesn't know how to throw a party is not a Christian. <laughs> Keep that in mind, Jerry. I'm kidding. <laughs> I like to give you a hard time, Jerry. Anyhow, um, verse 25. Now watch this. This is legalism. Here it goes. Me, and you can read it like this. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Hey, your brother's come, he replied. And your father's killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. I've been going to church all these years. I've been tithing all these years. You know how good a Christian I've been? Doggone it. And God forgives my brother. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so you could celebrate my friends. But when this son of yours squandered your property and prostitutes come home, you kill the fatted calf. Now listen to verse 31. You've got to read it slow because in here is the gem. My son, the father said, you are always That's it. That's the pearl of great price. That's what all of life is about, is being with God. And his son had it, and he didn't cherish it. He didn't cherish it. He said, um, everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because why? This brother is dead, and now he's alive. Your old self is dead. Die, so you can live. So I just have one more thing. Take me a minute. And I just want to talk to you about a visit I had to the cemetery. I just went to take a visit to the cemetery. When I drove to the cemetery, I brought with me a bottle of bourbon, a big bottle of bourbon. Because I wanted to go near the gravesides where all these, I knew a couple people that died of, really, they wasted away by drinking and just rotten people. And I just wanted to chat with them, so I thought I'd bring some bourbon. Because if I brought some bourbon, I thought they'd come out of the grave and talk to me. So I'm walking up and down, up and down the grave with bourbon. And you know what? 
None of them came and talked to me. None of them got up out of their graves who once were addicted to that. They didn't get out of their graves. Do you want to know why? They were dead. Are you 